Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm 13 years old. I'm lying in my bed at night. I got my transistor radio tuned to WAMO, WAMO, FM radio station in Pittsburgh. Now it's close to midnight, well past my bedtime, and Brother Love is opening the door to another world for me. Like a bolt of lightning, it snakes across the sky and buries itself in the sand to remain alive forever, ever, 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 ever. The underground movement is here. And tonight, we freak. Blow my mind, brother love. Brother Love was an FM DJ with a late night show. He played the latest records from the underground artists. Bands you would never hear on the hit parade shows of AM radio. And Brother Love's mission was to blow your mind, as he put it. In Swahili, actually. With the music of Pink Floyd, The Grateful Dead, Airplane, Blue Cheer, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Moby Grape, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, and Bob Dylan. These were all new artists to me, and they were the soundtrack for my childhood. Brother Love talked like a tripped-out hipster, the most in of the in crowd. And along with the newest records, he would tell stories of the freaks who turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. All about a lifestyle full of good vibes, new sounds, bright colors, and free love. Far from my black-and-white life, in the coal mining hills of western Pennsylvania. Brother Love talked about places with exotic names like Carnaby Street in London and Greenwich Village in New York City and the center of it all, Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. You know, from the days of the gold rush, the city on the bay has been a home to adventurers, artists, and outlaws. And the city is a collection of clearly defined neighborhoods, mainly by cultural heritage. Chinatown, Russian Hill, in the Italian neighborhood of North Beach, which was the center of the beat movement. Predecessors of the hippies. Writers like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, they would all gather to talk at Vesuvio's in North Beach, which was across the street from the Hungry Eye, a club that helped the transition from folk music to jazz performers, readings with poets and writers, comedy artists like Lenny Bruce and Dick Gregory. This is all just down the street from the City Lights bookstore, which was known for publishing the beat writer's work. As Bob Dylan put it, there was music in cafes at the night and revolution in the air. And then during the transition from the beats to the hippies, the energy moved across town to hate Ashbury for the gathering of the tribes be in, which kicked off the summer of love, actually in the winter of 66. 100,000 kids from around the country 
move to the hate for the promise of that new way of life. This was a time of huge worldwide cultural shift, and it was the dawning of the age of Aquarius, and San Francisco was ground zero. The writer, gonzo journalist, and one of my heroes, Hunter Thompson was there and wrote, quote, my central memory of that time seems to hang on one, five, or maybe 40 nights, or very early mornings, when I left the Fillmore half crazy, and instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour. Not sure what turnoff to take when I got to the other side, but being absolutely certain, no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was. Now I was 13. I was a little too young to run away to join the tribes. But Brother Love was my guide to it all. A Pied Piper who blew my mind. My guest today grew up in North Beach during the years of the transition and invasion. My dear friend Jordan Chelso is an expert in organic farming, an entrepreneur, and a true child of the 60s. When we get back, we'll hear all about his years in the city by the bay. You're listening to The Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Sonny. This is brought to you by Newsweek. It was his desire for a self-sustaining life outside the 9-5 and a passion for farming that led Jordan to leave San Francisco and embarked on a journey that ultimately led him to a tiny town in the heart of the Emerald Triangle, an area of Northern California comprised of Trinity, Mendocino, and Humboldt counties, a place known for growing the best weed in the world. Jordan has grown organic weed for the past 40 years. And from the early outlaw days through the transition to medicinal and now to legal, he has seen it all. A savvy business cat who saw the opportunity in opening the garden supply store in town, serving all the growers in the area. He is also a man who has a great reverence for the plant he grows and a passion for helping people discover the many mental and physical benefits of THC and CBD. He finds great joy in a business that provides people with, as he likes to say, a bag of grins. Jordan, how you doing today, bud? I'm good, man. Good to see you. Good always. to see you. You want to tell me how you, your journey from North Beach to the Emerald Triangle and how that came about? <sighs> well, long and convoluted, my friend. It's like I told you, it cost, um, it began when I couldn't get my classes to continue my major in cinematography at City College in San Francisco. And so I threw my paperwork in the trash and walked out the door and Two weeks later, I get my congratulations uh, induction notice for the draft because I was pre-lottery. Right. And so, um, like I told you, I did. The, I starved myself down to get an underweight minimum because after taking LSD, I could not think about killing anyone. So um, that was the beginning of the end. And so I said, screw it all and headed to the country where I wanted to be out of the establishment, as we called it back then and to grow organic food and so that was 69 ish that i left but you were you were living in san francisco for the summer all the way till then you know the summer of love 67 i graduated i graduated from high school in 1967 and spent time in haight ashbury at all yeah well even uh, in 66 actually it was as beautiful it was in 67 that's when it was really starting to pop and no one had heard about it and 
it was just a beautiful place to be. There were just people on the streets being friendly and groovy and obviously smoking marijuana and there was music going on everywhere, even bongos happening on the street. And it was just a beautiful little scene. In that time period in, in um, San Francisco, they were sort of, the na- neighborhoods were sort of se- maybe separated and kind of had their own culture. North Beach was oh, Little totally. Italy, right? Totally. <laughs> and Haight-Ashbury and the Castro, all that, you know, has its its own identity, right? They all did throughout San Francisco. There was the Russians out on Geary. There was Irish out in the avenues. The, the Chinatown was a few blocks away from me. And literally where I grew up on Filbert and Jones in San Francisco, it was solamente 100% Italiano. And it, it's just how it was. The neighborhoods were divided and everybody got along. So when you left, you had originally started growing organic food, plants, right? Not- yeah, just for myself. I wasn't doing it commercially. I was just learning how to grow, you know, and reading um, Rodale Press and Mother Earth News and trying to understand how to grow, how to make good soil. And so that's because I figured, okay, you're going to be self-sufficient. And like Che Guevara had said, you can't have a revolution without food. And, of course, during those times, revolution was a key thought for all of us alternative people. So I figured, okay, I'll learn how to grow food. But your journey from from out of the city didn't take you north first, right? Uh, No, no. First, it was because I had family ties in Placerville, which is in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. And my grandfather's older brother had had a 40-acre pear orchard up there. My father had bought a little piece of land, five acres, for $500 in 1954. And he kind of abandoned it. And when me and my friends learned how to drive and had cars, we would go up there and just play in it. And it was an unfinished cabin, but it was still, you know, had a fireplace and uh, electricity. No running water, which we had to carry the water up from the creek and um, an outhouse and all that kind of good stuff. But it was a great place to come up with friends to get out of the city and go party in the woods and swim in the creek. Both a family thing in agriculture, as I'm going to call it, right? And, you know, it kind of a training ground, if you will, for what you were eventually planning on doing, which is being part of the back-to-land movement, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there there really was no plan. (laughs) Guaranteed, there was no plan. (laughs) It was just go, you know, go forth, young man. And that's all it was, is this. I figured, okay, I don't want to be a part of this anymore this establishment system and I'm going to be self-sufficient was my goal. And little did I know how much that really takes, but growing food was the key essence. And so I did my best at learning how to number one, grow food, but that boils down to learning how to make good soil because you know, you can't grow anything without good soil, especially if you're in the organic world. I was going to, I was going to ask, was it, you were doing organic at that time. Totally, yeah. totally. I okay. Never could I decide to go. At that time, I quit buying anything that wasn't organic as best I could. It wasn't easy back in those days. But in San Francisco, it was pretty cool. There were a couple of places that were doing organic foods and things, you know. But it was it was new. It was a new concept, you know. Do get food without chemical poisons and sprays for pests and that. So... Yeah, uh, Organic Gardening Farming Magazine and Mother Earth News. Those oh, Mother Earth Bible. News. Okay, I somehow yeah. I got that. Um, but the whole no, he Earth... Was, he, was, he was the whole Earth catalog guy. Right, and yeah. I, I, that's he what... He seen a lot later. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, so okay. So that was later. I was I was wondering about that because it it was again for me that was a bit of the the hippie manual, right? By the yeah, time true. by the time it came around, it was like this is going to teach you how to be self sufficient and cut your ties. And well, he 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 more like actually the whole Earth uh, catalog was more about products that you could buy to help you get self sufficient and knowing that there are these things and tools and stuff out there that can get you off of the established track, you know, so to speak. No, I re- when did that come out? I forget, but it was it was definitely after I had already started trying to learn and and do the deal, you know. Okay, and and so what was the movement across the Golden Gate? And moving up north. For me or for other people? Well, I'd actually ask, you know, both. I mean, the movement, people started to move out and move north. They did. Sausalito yeah. and, you know, one, Once Haight-Ashbury Haight kind of turned into uh, dog shit and ripoffs, um, people were fleeing the city because it was just, it, the scene wasn't beautiful and happy anymore. The sweetness was gone. And so, yeah, people were getting out. And so I did, and that's what my track was. Little did I know where it would lead me at that point, but that was my goal, is to get out of the city and become self-sufficient. That movement north, that corridor, as you go across the bridge and you get into Marin. The 101 corridor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, At at that time, um, you had Crosby, Souls, Nash & Young living up that way, Boss Gag, Greg Allman, yep. many of them. Yeah. yeah. So it was. However, a- they had a lot more money than <laughs> hippie types like myself did. So I couldn't go buy a vineyard, et cetera, and <laughs> and you know do it like plus a. But so right. <laughs> yeah, it was a little different. But you know they wanted to get out as well. Yeah, I mean, and like if you follow some of the history of the farming that we're going to get into, and and the drug culture that actually fed. Um, hate Ashbury and a lot of actually the world because Owsley was was up in the northern part Santa Rosa California which is then f- the next sort of leap up the yeah, 101 that's about an hour north. that's about right. an hour north yeah that's where you know the early labs for LSD were were being done and thank god out. for him <laughs> <laughs> pretty amazing story pretty amazing story yeah. So you head north, and how did you end up in the Emerald Triangle, where you are now? Well, from Placerville, where I was, and Placerville all of a sudden got usurped by Sacramento. They finished the highway. It used to take over an hour from Sacramento to Placerville because it was all windy, two-lane road, and they made a four-lane highway from Sacramento to Placerville. And when I was there, all of a sudden, there's these huge shopping centers going and being under construction. I'm going, what the hell is going on? And I went, well, I don't want to live here anymore. So I sold my place, and my wife and I, we went and looked north. We thought, okay, can't afford in California anymore. So we went to Idaho, Washington, Oregon, looking for a place that could be self-sufficient, good water, good climate, et cetera couldn't find anything that we could afford because all of those good places were way out of our price range so as we we're driving around in the meantime i'm picking up antiques and to sell at the sausalito flea market which is what's keeping us alive at that point and as we drive back into california as soon as we cross the border the first car we see waves to us 
Nobody waved to us on the entire trip until we got back into California. <laughs> and then we got, okay, honey, we're home. So <laughs> as we're driving down, I remembered I had friends that used to live in San Anselmo, which is in Marin, just across the bridge from uh, San Francisco. And I, oh, yeah, they bought in Leightonville. So we stopped in to see them. And I said, well, look, we're looking for a place. They told me a friend who was a realtor. And the next day, I ended up buying this piece of property right in town behind the the uh, major grocery store, the only grocery store, I should say, which was right. not very major. But um, And so it was filled with antiques, which also triggered my interest and ended up the next day buying it for $13,000 and started working on this place. That was in 75. You know, it's to give people an idea of what and where Laytonville is, the population of Laytonville, I think now, is about 1,200 people. Well, you're pushing it. It's on, the, on the sign, it says 1,100. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and while you're driving up there, or driving down, right, from the direction that you were coming, it's out in the woods, man. You know, oh, yeah. it's yeah. redwood forest. Um, it's country, man. Yeah. It's uh, where, as the crow flies, Laytonville is about 11 miles from the ocean. Right. Um, it's about a 30-minute drive to the ocean. It's a high plateau, uh, coastal valley range. And actually, truth be known, Laytonville is the highest town on all of Highway 101 from Mexico to Canada. And it's highest for numerous reasons. I was say, <laughs> Elevation <it's> like... <laughs> and other reasons. <laughs> so when, when you got there, were there already growers established no. at that time at, at that time california they called it california green california green was worthless basically i mean you could sell it for probably a hundred dollars a pound but nobody that i knew that was moving there at that time in 75 was really growing pot maybe they're growing some for their own point but i mean even mexican weed was going for 200 a pound colombian was 300 a pound california green was like who wants it right but then it changed in 77, and people discovered how to grow sansomia to keep the males away from the females. And so all of a sudden, the interest was learning how to grow that in that way, and the price went up to like 800 a pound. So all of a sudden, it kind of opened the floodgates, and it's kind of a funny story because Laytonville at the time I moved was three ethnic groups. There was the ranchers, the Indians, and the new hippie types coming into town. <laughs> and after 77, all of a sudden, the uh, hippie types were growing new tru- driving new trucks. And <laughs> so, so the other two ethnic groups were going, hey, what's going on? So pretty much everybody fell in behind it. And at that time is when I thought, you know what? If everybody's going to start doing this, I should be the nursery guy because the piece, the piece of property that I bought was in a perfect spot for it. And having my background of knowing how to grow organic and knowing how to make good soil, I thought, okay, I can do this. Man, that's, you know, as I've talked to you, we've known each other for a while now. I just look at that as one of the most brilliant moves anybody could possibly make at, it, well, at the yeah. right time at the you know, right place at the right time. I have I have no excuse for it other than simply divine intervention because I really had no plan on all of this. And basically, Jack, I had six hundred dollars and decided I was going to be a nurseryman. And 
that's what it took. That's what I did. And of course, in those days with the laws and stuff, it was pretty easy to start a business, you know, and you didn't have all of the stuff they have now. So yeah, so in March of 78, I became Weathertop Nursery. And Bam! It's history now. The place is still going on. Wow, man. <laughs> you know, the, you mentioned the law, so I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Like during this whole period, you know, over the past few years, we sort of take—I think—we take it for granted that so many states have, you know, legalized weed. Some others haven't gone the whole way, but there's medicinal. Like Mississippi, finally, you know, has medicinal weed. Yeah, and you know. I'm fascinated on one hand about, you know, how that all existed, you know, without, well, too much major problems with the law out there. Oh, well, it depends on what years you're talking about, Jack, when there was always major problems with the law. And then it got very serious. Well, I still had the nursery in, let's see, what would that be? In probably about the 80s, they really started coming down with actually a thing called Campaign Against Marijuana Planting, and it called CAMP, for example. And it was search and seizure. If they found anything to do with marijuana on your property, they could take everything you had, your truck, your cars, your property, everything, and they would they would just totally trash the place. They would come in and raid and just trash it. And you'd end up in jail, and you'd have nothing because they would seize your land. So it was serious business. It was very, very hardcore. They did not like the idea of there being any kind of freedom around growing marijuana. Okay, so so it was serious my time. Misconception, I guess. I'd forgotten about the search and seizure you know, raids that were going on. Um, yeah, so a few hardcore of us still hung in there, and I still had the nursery at one time. Actually, we had the CBs. You know, we didn't have our, you know, any kind of cell phones and things, oh, and CB so radios. I had an antenna, CB radios, and so I was like control central in town, and going, you know, get on the horn because oh shit, guys, there's a convoy heading your way. They're going up Bell Springs Road and giving alerts to that, and they would come and raid and destroy. I mean, literally holding kids, holding their children at gunpoint with machine guns. Well, they're, they're heavy-duty artillery. And for hours and hours away, they destroyed their house and took everything away. It was serious business. I know a few friends that lost everything. Oh, man. So, right. yes, there was a, there was a, it was a dedication to this plant. You know, that's the amazing thing about it is those of us that grew it and honored it, we loved that plant. We knew what it could do. And here again, now, oh, yeah, now it's medicine. And now it can you know, right. possibly cure cancer. And maybe it even going to help with COVID. But then it was looked as an outlaw drug. It was classified along with heroin right. and, and, you know, class three. Come on. It was crazy times. And all of that, all of that craziness around it and vilification of it all over what you called a bag of grins. <laughs> well, in my justification for doing it and being involved in it is I never saw anyone hurt anybody while they were on marijuana. And my picture of it was is every bag of pot that I sent out 
was a bag of grins that would possibly make someone feel better, not kick their dog, not hit their kids, not beat their wife, you know, and just feel better about themselves. It was a med- it is a medicine. It is a medicine, you know? So I believed in that and yeah, I man. still do. It's a beautiful sentiment. And, um, I certainly, certainly. But a bag of grits. It really is. (laughs) It really is, man. I mean, when I think about, you know, as a kid, my first experience with it and my first buying of it, you know, you bought a four finger lid for like 20 (laughs) bucks and it was probably Mexican weed, you know, and yeah, you spent a lot of time laughing and having a damn good time, man. And uh, I really appreciate your sentiment about it, about how you went about growing it, what you believe in, as you say, you honor the plant. And that's a, that comes across in your product. I think it's beautiful. And I want to thank you for coming around and joining the leisure class today, my brother. Thank you. Dude, you're going to come back on when we do the cocktail yeah. here, right? In about I'm going to go five. refill my glass. Well, it's time for the segment we call Shake It Up or deep dive into the science, inspiration, and artistry in the making of creative craft cocktails. My co-host is Brad Johnson, a musician friend of mine with a shared passion for the good stuff, and who is a cocktail wizard, a true star behind the bar. All right, so in honor of our guest today, I wanted to have a cocktail that has a history in San Francisco in the Bay Area, and... The Tequila Sunrise, one of my favorite drinks, comes from Sausalito. It's got a checkered history. Maybe Brad, you can you can you know fill us in a little bit on this particular I'm gonna, cocktail. I'm going to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. But cheers to you. I've got one, and it is and it's quite delicious. Cheers, y'all. Wow, damn! I'm totally only drinking cheers. straight tequila, but all right, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> So, so Jack. Yeah. You, yeah. Yes, you mentioned the the origins of in the late '60s, early '70s ish mm-hmm. from Sausalito, and that comes from. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you are, I would say, probably more adept at Rolling Stones legend and lore than I am. But as it as they say, the Stones in the Altamont era. We're, we're partying at a bar called the Trident Bar in Sausalito. I've been there. And the... <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course you have. That's awesome. <laughs> so the bartender's riffing on a classic recipe of, you know, Mick. I guess Mick had asked for a margarita, and they had just got a, a, a fresh juicer, like a, a juicer that would, you know, fresh squeeze what would have whatever citrus you have, right? And being in California, orange juice being so predominant, there you go. And so they riffed on the classic 70s version of the, uh, the Tequila Sunrise, which we all know and love. But actually, as it turns out, I did some deep diving into the origins of this. And it was originally on a cocktail menu. Then this is this has been verified. It was originally on a cocktail menu in the 30s. What at the Agua Caliente racetrack in Tijuana? Uh, and <laughs> and it's but it was it was a little different. Like it's it's the the it's a bit of a di- different variation. So the 30s recipe is 
one and a half, one and a half ounces of tequila, a half of a lime squeezed, six dashes of grenadine, two dashes of cassis, which is wow. uh, like a French black currant liqueur. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you put that over ice and then you fill or top with seltzer water. And there you have that, that gradient effect wow. with the red down at the bottom that kind of fades up to the top. Now, that's the 30s version. The 70s <laughs> version that you were calling out from Sausalito was one-sixth of an ounce of grenadine. Yes, one-sixth of an ounce. Nobody uses these kinds no. of, of ratios these days. I don't even know how to measure that. <laughs> right. One-sixth of an ounce of grenadine, one-sixth of an ounce of cassis, so that the cassis kind of remained from that original version, one-and-a-half ounces of tequila, three-quarters of an ounce of orange curacao, Jesus. Half an ounce of lime, 2.5 ounces of orange. So so you get three ounces of juice altogether right. and one and a half ounces of tequila. But then you also have that three quarters of an ounce of, of orange curacao. Orange curacao is an orange liqueur that it's it's dry. So it's it's not as cloying or sweet, but it does have that that kind of bitter orange flavor to it. And so that's the 70s version that everybody knows and love. And so the, the way you make this drink is you take your syrups, your grenadine and your cassis, and you pour them into the, the glass that has ice with it. You shake all the other ingredients, the tequila, the orange curacao, the lime and the orange juice. You shake that over ice and then you strain over the top of it. And because of the weight or the thickness or viscosity, if you will, of the syrups, it remains at the bottom and that juice and, and the rest of the concoction goes over the top of it. And there you have the two different color gradients and you could either keep it like that, which is a little weird to drink, right? Because you have all this syrup at the bottom of your drink and then you have a boozy orange piece of the drink that's up top and, you know, good luck trying to get those things to mix together. So essentially you look at it and go, oh my God, that's beautiful. There it is. It's the tequila sunrise. And then if you want it to taste right, you need to stir it stir together it to, yeah. to, you know, to a degree to where you have those flavors blending in to make a cohesive cocktail. You know, the version that, that most people come across is a pretty simple, you know, one, right? That's oh right. yeah, we'll yeah. get to yours in a minute because I know it's going to be anything <laughs> but simple. But you know, it's um, basically you know uh, four ounces of orange juice, uh, two ounces of well, for me it's always got to be two ounces of booze. I don't this whole one and a half ounce yeah, booze no. thing. I don't get at all. three ounces. Come on, exactly. Yeah, I'm a three ounce kind of guy, so that's <laughs> what too. I'm working with today. Okay, but we'll get to my we'll get to my riff in a little bit, but yeah, I'm always working so it's with three so it's like you know for for what we made today here with Inigo. The original recipe is four ounces of OJ, yep. um, two ounces of tequila, and then like a quarter of an ounce of the grenadine. Quart- you know, yeah, sort quarter of, and that's of an that's yep. sort of. You know what yep. we're looking at here—the sort of tricolor. Oh, nice! Variation is really, that's really pretty. beautiful. Yeah, that's the that's the classic, that's the easy classic. to do recipe. That's, there's there's essentially three ingredients. Don't mess around. Nice and nice and right. straightforward. And that's I think that's pretty much what what Mick and Keith were were drinking on what they ended up calling what the 
Tequila Sunrise and Cocaine Tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I, love, yeah. I love that there's there's the legend and lore is so deep right. that they had a tour named after <laughs> so, coca- cocaine and and tequila sunrises. And so, don't forget that cocaine was probably the most essential ingredient. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it was real, right? Um, so <laughs> well, t- in today's as real version, as Keith, as real as Keith could get. Yeah, man. The version that we made today in honor of our guest as well was... Me? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. That's you, Jordan. We put a little... Uh, created a little weed-infused tequila. Oh, yes. This week. And, <laughs> oh, uh, oh, dear. And, and so... And actually, I think it tastes pretty damn good. I was going to say Brad said to mix it, but I'm halfway done. So, awesome. Well, as Jack as Jack will testify, I have been a great infuser. Yeah. Uh, I also have a still, so I make my oh. own brandy. And, oh, that's awesome. Um, in my brandies, I mix up. I throw my uh, we call it 420 brandy. I will just throw in my my trimmings, right? Not not flowers, but my trimmings. Let it sit for 30 days because it takes a while for alcohol to take care of the THC in there. And then you come out with another elixir that is definitely different, okay? So Absolutely. I have been in a few. I could attest to that. There's other, there's other products that we have used, and Jack has probably talked to you about it. And it's from the Sunshine Poppies, but... Yeah, yeah, it's amazing what can happen when you infuse those things into alcohol and make them for a libation, right? Right. So the difficulty is is making them palatable. Right? Well, that's which is where I think Brad, you come in. Yeah. So <laughs> I had the recipe that I had um, to make the weed infusion involved uh, what I call decarb boxylation, um, doing that to the weed first. So you're gonna kind of roasted at a very low, low temperature, which supposedly releases some of the THC quality before you either bake, bake goods, make edibles with it, or this infusion. So I did that. Okay. Um, it was about a quarter ounce of Jordan's weed. And uh, put it in with a bottle of uh, Reposado that I had, and it oh. sat for about a week. They say okay. that, you know, the recipe that I, that I looked at said, you know, could 24 hours would be the least, and you could do it for a couple of weeks if you wanted. So it was yeah. about a week. It smelled really great when I strained it out. And so the cocktail that we made tonight, in honor of my Fratello, is <laughs> we used uh, one ounce of the weed tequila. Weed kila. Weed kila. <laughs> Weed, weed, kila. weed, kila. That's got a, that's got a ring to it. That's got a ring, right? I think, I think maybe we need to start a brand. Weed, kila. Yeah, weed, kila. California rapper. That's what it sounds like. Exactly. That's what did he say? I It said it sounds like a North California rapper. The weed killer. You're right. Weed, kila. I like it. Yeah. I think there already is guy. An ounce, an ounce of weed, killer. Weed, kila. And then uh, an ounce of regular uh, Reposado. Because I I wasn't sure, you know, the strength or what was going to happen here. So we're kind of easing into it. Um, Three ounces of fresh squeezed orange juice and an ounce of pineapple juice. And then a quarter an ounce of the grenadine. 
And I so it's like it's so like it's a tequila sunrise squared. Right. <laughs> yeah. God, exactly. <laughs> Jack, tell, tell me how the pineapple is is blending with that weed infused tequila because you you know you and I were talking about riffing on this the other day and right. and my my thought was that well if weed weed has that kind of hoppy aroma that hoppy flavor and because so many beer makers take you know IPAs and do like pineapple orange right. guava like they they make them juicy that that might be a good combo and that and and there you have it like you have that kind Brad, of combo going is, are you getting that kind of essence yeah, at all yeah man this is delicious this is <laughs> really that's cool every, all right so, there we go so let me so let me ask you yeah are you actually feeling the effect i think it's probably going to take a little bit although Okay. It feels it feels different than a regular cocktail, but that could be just my head at the moment. Oh, it is, yeah, it is your head. <laughs> it is in that's, my head, that's, right? Yeah, that's, that, um, that's what about you, the, Inigo? You, no, this what are you is, thinking? This is amazing. I'm at the pineapple right now. When you were saying the hoppy, mm-hmm. right aspect of it, yeah, I, I don't like beer. I've never been a beer guy, uh, right? But this is this is amazing. You're getting that, the hoppy with the pineapple. Yeah. That, yeah. that seems yeah. to that, those two flavors kind of they, they they would seem to match up to me. Mm-hmm. You yep. know, that, interesting. That's interesting. Well, you, you do know that marijuana is a cousin of the hops plant, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So exactly. that I did not know. Okay. Yeah, they're they're cousins of a of a similar genus. Wow, interesting. I think that I like the I like this uh, the little bit of sweetness that the pineapple adds. I haven't hit the grenadine yet because it's all at the bottom. I didn't stir mine yet, but because um, I was thirsty. <laughs> well, Jack, remember? I mean, I think I think the sweetness is important because uh, you know the eating of the herb. Right. It's like so bitter, and so it needs a little sweetness to balance it. Remember when we were doing the poppy? Right. Okay? The frangelico is what kind yes. of mellowed it out. The yeah. almond kind of oh, that's interesting. Out. So yeah, yeah, that nuttiness to kind of round it out. It did that because I'll tell you profile. what, doing poppy infused alcohol, yeah. it's so it tastes like a new mown meadow. Okay, and it's like <laughs> so grassy in your mouth, and it's like okay, it's good, but it's too much. Okay, There's so actually... we added frangelico to yeah. it, and then it was like sippable, and then it was nice. We got high. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I th- I'm I think, high. I think, I think I'm high. <laughs> I think that's what's going on. Well, that's it for this episode of the Leisure Class, friends. I really appreciate you joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe, give us a five star rating, and tell your friends all about the Leisure Class. Brought to you by Newsweek. <laughs>